few weeks back, I had decisive point principal James Thomas Coates on the show for a discussion about an untapped and often unknown sources of federal biotech funding. Much of that talk centered on little-known biopharma research and development funding mechanisms associated with the U.S. Army, Navy, and Air Force. I'm Matt Piller, and on today's episode of The Business of Biotech, we're talking with the leader of a biopharma company that's been fueled in large part by such federal funding sources, the Army in particular. The company is Longhorn Vaccines and Diagnostics, and my guest today is its co-founder and president, Jeff Fisher. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation. And, uh, you know, I do want to talk about some of the funding mechanisms, the aspects of your your relationship with the Army a little bit later, in addition to obviously learning about your important work on on vaccines, namely uh, the universal influenza vaccine that Longhorn is working on. But before we get into all that, obviously, I, I'd like to get to know my guests a little bit. And Jeff, I got to tell you, when I look at it on paper, your path to leadership at Longhorn doesn't look like a direct and predictable route, certainly not a direct and predictable as some of the execs that we have on the show. Um, so I want you to start by telling us a story about how an infantry officer left the Marine Corps. Thank you for your service, by the way. Yeah. And just two years later, after leaving the Marine Corps, was the chief financial officer at a biopharma company developing monoclonal antibodies called Biosynexis. That, that's your start. That's your jumping off point, Jeff. I want you to tell us a little story about that guy. Right. Well, thank you. Um, well, I, I left uh, college and went into the Marine Corps, uh, was an infantry officer for uh, about four and a half years um, and decided to uh, to move on into the business world. And so I went to the University of Texas at Austin uh, to get my uh, MBA. And as I was uh, finishing up uh, and looking at, at job opportunities, mostly in the finance field uh, in either New York or in San Francisco, um, my father reached out to me and said that uh, that he was interested in spinning out a company from the very successful uh, biotech company that he and his colleagues had started uh, about uh, 10 years earlier. Uh, and so um, I looked at the opportunity and saw that uh, much like my time in the Marine Corps, uh, I would be given a lot of responsibility at a very young age, um, responsibility that in other uh, parts of business uh, would probably have taken me a lot longer to be given the opportunity to take on. And so um, we decided that it was a good fit. And uh, I came back, moved back to the Washington, D.C. area where I grew up. And uh, the two of us um, worked together to spin out a company that uh, became uh, Biosynexis and developed uh, products, including monoclonal antibodies for the prevention and treatment of staphylococcal infections. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to get into the, uh, you know, the story around the transition from Biosynexis to Longhorn Vaccines and Diagnostics as well. But when, when you, so when you first joined Biosynexis, uh, when you, when you made that move, what, what was your role there? So we, I actually joined a company called Virion Systems, which was the company that my father and his colleagues had started to take some technology that they had developed in the military uh, that was uh, first technology to demonstrate a way to prevent uh, respiratory syncytial virus infections in premature babies. Um, they, uh, because that work was discovered in the in the military, they had to go out and take it into a private company to move it forward. And so they started a company They then partnered with a company called Metamune uh, that took that forward clinically 
while they provided a lot of the um, developmental uh, work behind the scenes, uh, ensuring that dosages and other components were correct in the animals. And so that still today uh, is the only prevention for RSV pneumonia uh, that's ever uh, been commercialized. Yeah. So, yeah. So we had an opportunity at that point. He wanted to do the same thing, looking for uh, monoclonal antibodies that would prevent staphylococcal infections in that same population. He's a pediatric infectious disease specialist who spent his career uh, trying to treat and prevent infections in premature babies. And so uh, we started a new company uh, that we uh, called Biosynexis. And so my job was to go find the funding uh, for that company so that we could take that company out and make it a, a standalone company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about your your dad's work. Uh, you and I had the opportunity to chat a, a couple of weeks back um, in advance of this recording. And, um, you know, it, it occurs to me that your dad did some, uh, he did some pretty important work during his tenure um, d- doing research and development w- with the Army. Um, so tell, tell me a little bit more about that. So my father... Uh, came back uh, to the Washington, D.C. area in uh, 1977 uh, to be one of the uh, first professors at the military medical school. And as part of that, he also set up the uh, pediatric infectious disease training program for the military, training all three services uh, that have physicians uh, in pediatric infectious diseases. Um, That was in the early 80s at the same time when uh, HIV was coming out. And, and so he spent a lot of time uh, working with people at NIH, such as Tony Fauci and others, uh, trying to figure out how to treat HIV, especially in, in, uh, in babies. Uh, so he, he did a lot of that work while at the same time looking for ways to prevent infections and treat infections in these uh, vulnerable populations. And they were doing a study looking uh, at preventing bacterial infections using uh, just immune globulin, um, and they found success, but they didn't find it on the bacterial side. They found it on the viral side, and that was RSV. Uh, and so that was not considered something that should have happened. Um, previous vaccine trials of uh, RSV vaccines had actually shown that uh, they had a higher mortality rate in the children who received the vaccine uh, than those who received the placebo. And the concern was that uh, antibodies in the face of, of infection made it worse. And so they were able to uh, flip that dogma and, uh, again, that able to change that, uh, that disease for premature babies. And uh, that has become a, a big part of his work. Uh, but it was that expertise in antibodies, uh, initially polyclonal antibodies and the monoclonal antibodies that, that led to a lot of the work uh, and and now really a lot of what we're doing as well. Yeah. Yeah. Your dad's influence. So, I mean, you, uh, I, I look at you and I, say, I, I see a guy who, you know, went to the Marine Corps, you know, perhaps, you know, sort of following uh, uh, your, your father's uh, legacy of, of service there. Uh, but then you mentioned, you know, you, you sort of thought in the back of your head, you'd come out of the Marine Corps and work in finance. Um, eventually you were, you were pulled into the life sciences business by your dad. Tell me about sort of your mindset at the time, what influenced you to make to the decisions uh, that you made to make a career uh, in life sciences. Um, and which of those pools, like, you know, was, was the service pool kind of coming from your dad? Was the life sciences pool kind of coming from your dad? What was his influence in the, in the whole sort of transaction at the time? 
Well, certainly I grew up uh, in the military. I grew up uh, moving from uh, army bases in Washington to Hawaii to uh, back here in Washington, D.C. I spent uh, all of uh, basically my life up until uh, until I got into the Marine Corps uh, being on and off of the base. And so that was always something I was going to do, whether it was I was from that Top Gun generation, that original Top Gun generation who was going to go fly. And uh, and so uh, that was probably a partial influence as well. Uh, but then it led to me uh, getting in the Marine Corps and, and realizing that I enjoyed kind of the, the core of the Marine Corps, the ground side. And that's uh, how I got there. Uh, I never was good at science. Uh, I never saw a path to being a physician like my father. Uh, but when the opportunity to work with him uh, and work with the family, uh, I, I thought that was a great opportunity for us to 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 work together and spend time together. Uh, and and again, being given the responsibility at, at such a young age was was great. It led me to to grow uh, substantially in my career. Uh, I was very, very fortunate um, that our lead investor uh, in that uh, company, Biosynexis, was the one of the co-founders and chief investment officers for the Carlisle Group. Uh, he uh, invested in us as a uh, private investment in his own investment and then served as our chairman. And really served as a mentor to me. And so uh, at a young age, I had access to somebody uh, that really understood the finance industry and understood uh, really kind of how to how to build companies. And so that was a, a huge part of my development, uh, transitioning from the military to uh, being a, a senior executive in a small company. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a, that's a good transition to, uh, some of the questions I have for you around the, the business of biotech. Um, but, but first of all, as, as I said in the intro, thank you, uh, again to you and your father, not just for your service in the, in the military, but also for the important work that he's done, uh, on the research side. Thank you. So you, uh, you eventually sold, uh, venture back biosynexis while it was in phase two clinical studies. So tell me a little bit about, uh, about that and, and why, why that decision was made. Uh, we were having tremendous success in the clinic and we were needed to raise more money as biotech firms do. Uh, and we were having challenges at the board level, um, we had an investor who uh, initially, when, when he first came on, seemed like an ideal investor, a physician uh, who had been successful uh, in, in some earlier uh, venture work, uh, had raised a larger fund, and uh, we were one of his early uh, investments in that fund. Uh, as as that uh, as his fund went sideways uh, and some things in his life went sideways, uh, he put a lot of pressure on us to be able to to take funding at levels that, that really weren't out there in the market. Uh, and while we had some some great uh, venture-backed uh, partners, uh, it, it just really kind of turned into a mess as they tried to figure out uh, how we could move forward taking on new funding. And fortunately, because of the success that we had, we were able to uh, find an exit through, uh, through a hedge fund uh, and move forward. But I think what it led us to realize is that we were making decisions not based on the science, the medicine, uh, but on really what an individual venture partner uh, needed for his his fund and his uh, and his personal needs. And so mm -hmm. that was discouraging to us that that we were not able to uh, 
to just focus entirely on the medicine and the science. Yeah. You've told me that uh, you're not particularly fond, I'll put it, put it in polite terms, you're not particularly fond of, uh, of, of working with, with VC firms. Is, does, does that experience sort of lie at the a root of that aversion to, to the VC space? Yeah, I think like any bad relationship, you know, it, it casts um, a shadow on, on the entire uh, process. And, and so I, I'm sure that there are wonderful VCs out there, probably most of them. And some of the ones we did work with were great, uh, but it really, uh, on the way out, left us a really bad taste and, and made sure that at least as we were building the company, we wanted to be independent and wanted to be able to make decisions based again on the science and the medicine. Uh, and and I think we've been able to do that. I think it's allowed us now to uh, to, to relook at that space, uh, understanding we're going to have to raise a lot of money to to take these products through. Uh, we may be able to offset some or all of those expenses through our commercial diagnostic division, uh, but it, it does lead us to to look for partners, whether they be venture partners or private equity partners. Yeah. Yeah, I can see where uh, an experience like that would not jibe with, um, you know, the, the integrity, discipline, and objectivity that I, I'm sure was in, sort of instilled or ingrained in you during your your service in the, in the Marine Corps and your father as well during his service to the Army. Absolutely, I think that you know, we in, in those positions you, you're looking to move things forward under the best um, the best decision making not necessarily things that involve individuals and, and financial decisions. Yeah. So the next stage, uh, as I understand it, in your biopharma business uh, journey was the formation of Longhorn Vaccines and Diagnostics. That was around 2007. Um, so tell us how that came to pass. Well, after we sold Biosynexus, we were trying to figure out what we should do next, whether we should continue to work together. Uh, and so my father came to me and said, you know, we should go after pandemic influenza, which I had never heard of. Uh, I knew about influenza. So he handed me a book on the 1918 flu and said, read this over the weekend. Uh, by Monday, we had a, a plan for building a new company uh, to look for products on the diagnostic side and the vaccine side that would uh, prevently either prevent an influenza pandemic or uh, have an effect on mediating it. And so uh, we started that in 2005, and by 2007, we found a, uh, scientific, a chief scientific officer who had experience developing molecular tools, and then we formed uh, Biosynex, or we formed Longhorn Vaccines and Diagnostics uh, to really move those products forward. And so my father started working on the uh, developing a universal influenza vaccine. We were never looking to build another seasonal flu vaccine. Uh, nor did we think it was it was valuable to go after a single strain of pandemic influenza because uh, even though H5N1 was circulating at the time and the most likely one to be a pandemic strain, we felt that it was more important that uh, that we could prevent any pandemic uh, from influenza occurring. And so he kept his head down and focused on really building uh, a universal vaccine. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, so for, first question on that, w w when you launched Longhorn Vaccines and Diagnostics, was it uh, f was it entirely, given your version to VCs, was it funded entirely in-house, in, in, in you know, as a result of that, uh, the, the, the sale of Biosynexus or, or how well? It's like, how, how did you go about funding the launch of this brand new, you know, two-pronged uh, company? We decided to take 
the money that we had in the family from the success of the uh, of the monoclonal antibody for RSV and and some of the money we we did not uh, receive much in the way of funds from the sale of Biosynexus. Uh, we ensured that our investors uh, that were in there were uh, fully uh, made whole, made sure that their dividends that they had accrued were were fully paid, uh, and so that didn't leave a lot for us. But we did we had been successful. Uh, through the, the original work with the um, RSV antibody. And so we were able to take those funds and build the company, which was great because it forced us to be lean. It forced us to be focused uh, and it for- forced us to realize that every dime we were spending was our own money. Yeah. We're going to get into uh, some of the success of the diagnostics business and what that's meant uh as it relates to the development of a universal influenza vaccine. Uh, and I'm going to ask you to share some detail on that, but so before I do sort of as some foreshadowing, was it a, was it a strategic uh, decision to launch this business w- with the, with these two prongs to, to say, you know, the diagnostics business is going to be one thing. The vaccines business is going to be, you know, another, although, uh, you know, albeit related. Um, but, but it's important that we attempt to develop a business around both as opposed to one or the other. Did, did you know from the outset that that would be strategic? Now I'm again, foreshadowing because it, it <laughs> we're, as we're going to learn, it, it was strategic, uh, but, but was it intentional at the time? It was intentional because we, we knew that we've, we've had a lot of experience developing vaccines and monoclonal antibodies, and we know that it's a long road and mm-hmm. uh, it, it takes time. And at the time we didn't even have an approach. We, we knew we, what we were looking for, but we weren't even sure how we were going to get there on the vaccine side. The opposite was true on the diagnostic side. We had an approach and we knew where we were going. We found the right uh, team to put together to build what we were looking for. And so we were a little bit ahead of our time. We decided that we were going to focus the diagnostic team on molecular tools to uh, to diagnose uh at an early stage, uh, this pandemic influenza. And, and that's really a, where both of our military experience came in. Uh, we knew that a pandemic was going to likely begin in Asia. That's where they tend to begin, uh, as we've seen with, with SARS-CoV-2. And we needed products that could work in really kind of rural challenging conditions where uh, and that both of us had seen my father uh, very much so when he was doing his tropical medicine training in Thailand during the Vietnam War uh, and spending time in, in very rural parts uh, of that part of the world. Uh, I had spent time in the Marine Corps in Africa uh, and in uh, Southeast Asia. And so we certainly were understanding of what challenges we were going to be facing. And so what we knew, though, is that we could get those products to market much quicker than a vaccine. And so that that, may, that would allow us to not hopefully have to fund the company as long and that the diagnostic division would be able to fund a lot of the vaccine development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an amazing illustration of the application of real world experience uh, to, to the business plan. And a lot of that real world experience coming from uh, you and your father's service in, in, the, in, the, in the armed forces. Um, so the, the success of the diagnostics business, uh, was sort of fueled, I'm assuming through the H1N1, uh, TB and, and, and COVID pandemics. Like, t- tell me about, I guess, the, the influence of, of those, uh, epidemics, uh, on, on the growth of the diagnostics business. 
So we fortunately, we were able to develop the tools that we were looking to make. And so we developed them. We were able to do some initial clinical work prior to the H1N109 uh, pandemic. And we were, we were able to show is that the diagnostic tools we built could uh, diagnose not just early stage uh, influenza infection, but even uh, asymptomatic stage infection. And so we had just finished uh, some studies and, and published some data on that uh, when the H1N1 pandemic hit. And so that was one of the first uses, if not the first use that the FDA put of emergency use authorization. Mm -hmm. And so we went through that process, which was, uh, was very uh, extensive, uh, especially for a small company like ours. Uh, and we were able to get emergency use authorization. Uh, unlike this pandemic, uh, there were very few uh, companies that went through the process out of the 18 uh, with us being one of the 18, I think at least 10 of them were government uh, EUAs, CDC right. and military and, and multiple CDC and military um, uh, EUAs uh, molecular, which just really wasn't the, the core testing at the time. And so, uh, but by the time we got our, our approval in place, our, our authorization in place, uh, the pandemic had really kind of fizzled out. Uh, and I think, uh, unfortunately, for at the time for us, as well as really for the, the ability for governments to prepare for pandemics, I think the belief was that maybe pandemics weren't going to be as bad, uh, that, that the H1N1 was a sign of what a pandemic looked like uh, in the age of modern medicine. And yeah, how, how little how little we knew. Yeah. And so we decided that we that. The U.S. market was not yet ready for molecular testing for influenza. And so we went looking for a pandemic. And we, we found was that outside of the U.S. and outside of most parts of Europe, uh, tuberculosis was a pandemic, an everyday pandemic. And we felt that the tools we had built for influenza would serve the tuberculosis field well. And at the same time, uh, the tuberculosis community was looking to switch over to molecular testing because tuberculosis takes a long time to grow. And so diagnosis was often delayed uh, by a month or more. And so to, to do good quality diagnosis, they needed better tools, faster tools. And we felt that we had those tools. Um, unfortunately, we faced a lot of headwinds from the community who had ideas on how they wanted to do things and questioned a lot of the, the claims that we were making uh, even though they were backed by peer-reviewed science. Uh, and so in 2018 or 2016, we approached the FDA about taking our product, our, our lead product, Prime Store Molecular Transport Media, through the 510K process so that the FDA, the, the world's leader in uh, determining quality and, uh, and efficacy, uh, would be able to, to tell the world that what we were saying was true. And so we approached them and they looked at our technology and said that it was novel. It was something that they didn't have another product that was similar enough for us to compare to. And so they, we worked with the FDA to uh, develop a new category of device. And so we, we put through what's called a de novo uh, product. And so it became the device that all similar devices had to compare themselves to. And so we completed that process with the FDA in 2018 uh, and then went about 
trying to convince the laboratory community, the diagnostic community, that this was a better product, better collection device, and one that um, that they should be using in front of their molecular tests. Uh, we were in that process. We had uh, signed up uh, Fisher Scientific as a clinical distributor. Uh, things were starting to move forward when uh, the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic hit, and the FDA called us before an emergency had been declared by WHO, before the uh, the President of the United States had declared an emergency, and said, "This is what we worked on together." to get you cleared. We don't want you to do any additional testing. We don't want you to file any EUAs. We just want you to produce as much of this as you can. And we, the health and human services need you. We need you. And we're, we're here as a partner and we'll work closely with you to get what you need. You know, so this might, this is going to be a difficult question for you to answer. Jeff, so I'll give you that. I'll give you that warning right off the bat. You you just outlined. I, I'm I'm thinking of three three specific things you just outlined. Um, you know, the EUA as a very young company, a two year old company achieving an EUA, which those are few and far between. Much less doled out to two year old uh, companies. The de novo status, and then you know the 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 unanticipated third, you know. Th- Third, third pandemic, if you will, uh, that led to the FDA coming back to you and saying, you know, hey, let's let's get together and solve some problems here. Um, those th- those three things, uh, it, it occurs to me, are illustrative of some sort of influence, um, ability, skill. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure what to call. It. That's part of the question uh, around dealing with regular federal regulatory bodies. So tell us about that. Like, wh- why why has Longhorn had What's behind that? I guess success in uh, from a from a very early stage in its in its uh, existence through today. What, what's behind that success in moving quickly and and nimbly with regulatory agencies? I, I warned you it was it was going to yeah. be a tough question to answer. No, I think one of the great things that we've done going back is you know through previous companies uh, and and through today is that. We believe in very good science. We believe in uh, pushing the science to its limits. We believe in transparency and and peer-reviewed documents, peer-reviewed articles. And so we have always been willing to show our science and show what we've done. At the same time, we also hired great people and, and let them do what they do. So even though we've been small, everybody has the ability to do more than often uh, a larger team could do. And so and then we rely on them to to do what it is that they do. But in working with the regulatory agencies, there were times when we had to push back very hard on on certain things. But what we did, we did it in a way where we showed our cards and we showed them why. And and we were able to explain to them uh, by, by laying everything out and, and getting them comfortable that we weren't doing this because it was going to make us more money or that it was uh, that we were hiding something to, to get what we were looking for. We, we worked on it by 
educating them and allowing them to educate us and then working together to find that uh, that way of, of getting to the finish line. And that's really how we got through the de novo process. Um, we had to help them get past a comfort zone. And once they got there, then it became a partnership and really one that's continued to this day where I, I still keep in touch with several of the reviewers um, that we worked through this process. And, and I think that's what also led them to reach out to us in the early stage of the pandemic is they knew that they could trust us, that we would be doing things in a way that followed the science. When you're striving to excel in a new arena, the best guides are the ones already doing it well. The business of biotech brings those voices forward to help new and emerging biopharmas turn their innovations like mRNA and cell and gene therapies into clinical realities. Tune in and subscribe for insights on hiring, regulatory, and other need-to-know topics for biopharma leaders. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva. Check out their resources at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com backslash emerging biotech. Yeah. All right. One, uh, one last, I, well, maybe not one last, couple more questions on uh, sort of that growth of the diagnostics <laughs> business. And then I want to, I want to get into the vaccine candidate. Um, you, you just mentioned that you're a, you're a small team. You're 14 employees. Is that correct? That's about right. Yeah. So about 14 uh, employees. And yet um, during <clears throat> COVID, your diagnostics business went from making uh, 50,000 units per year uh, of sample collection units. Um, so that was t- 2019, 50,000 per year. In 2020, you were, you're producing 50 million. Did I, did I get those numbers right? Yeah, that's, uh, we, we dramatically were able to, uh, increase our production. Uh, we, we could have done more. Uh, we were, uh, one of the challenges we faced were some of the components, um, that we needed. Um, and then there were a couple of other, uh, issues that came up with some third parties that uh, outside of our control that had nothing to do with us, but we were uh, in a position to just really expand quickly. And so tell me a little, yeah. Give, give I was just saying, and, and we were, we were being called daily from by health and human services and FDA, you know, pushing us harder and harder to get to higher numbers and, uh, and, and, and giving having them give us the tools uh, when we needed them to get there. Like what, what sort of tools? Well, we were in a situation where our supplier of our test tubes, uh, of our collection tubes was a Canadian company and uh, they really weren't looking to expand and uh, we needed a specific type of tube. And so the uh, health and human services reached out, found the two companies in the United States uh, that produce that type of tube and had all of their capacity sent to us. So that was helpful. And then when even that wasn't enough, uh, they reached out to uh, some of the national labs like Los Alamos uh, and said, how do we make them, how do we make tubes for the for this company? Uh, and so they helped us find solutions very quickly uh, that weren't necessarily ideal for the long-term, but helped fill a very important gap. And so that led to really one of the unique uh, collaborations during the pandemic where uh, we were working with the largest Coca-Cola bottling company uh, to receive uh, components of the 
of a plastic bottle um, that in its early stage looks just like a test tube and, and acts just like a test tube. And because Coca-Cola uh, has to ship product all over the world at all different temperatures and keep their stuff carbonated, uh, it was an ideal tube from knowing that we wouldn't have problems with leaking or cap issues. And so it ended up being a, a great partnership uh, that helped states especially get through some of the early testing where uh, there was a lot of uh there were a lot of supply chain issues with getting sample collection devices. So you're telling, you're telling me that you're, uh, you're leveraging raw, raw materials, like n- not yet formed uh, Coca-Cola bottles uh, to meet distribute, you know, su- supply chain distribution needs. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, uh, you know, that that's where working with smart people uh, in this case, uh, a, a brilliant scientist at one of the national labs who, instead of being stuck six weeks later trying to build a uh, a new mold for realized that there was there was a solution already on the table and uh, and it worked great and so we were very thankful that uh, that again this is a great opportunity for us to work with government and and really smart people in government to uh, to make quick decisions yeah all right. Awesome. Um, I, w- I want to, you know, I could, I could ask, ask you questions. I, you know, I, I'd love to ask you more questions about that. Like I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall during those negotiations and those early discussions. Like, Hey, let's go talk to Coca-Cola. Uh, but we're going to, we're going to run short on time. And I want to make sure we spend some time talking about this universal influenza vaccine candidate, uh, which right now you're preparing for clinical trials uh, for, for that candidate candidate, which um, I guess we'll start uh, with the obvious, a universal vaccine candidate it is something that's been bantied about for for quite some time now. A lot of companies have have tried it. A lot of companies continue to try it. Um, a lot of companies working on on that concept. Um, you know, we I, th- I think we use the term it's the it's the holy grail. You know, and everybody likes to use that term. But if you stop and think about the term the holy grail, it's called the holy grail. Uh, I, I guess the whole analogy is this thing's never been found. So, uh, what makes you think that um, that you can be the company that cracks that nut that where, where so many others have failed and where so so many others are, are currently trying. Well, first of all, we didn't rush into this. So we, we came up with this plan in 2005. And so we're sitting here in, in 2022, just getting ready to go into the clinic. And, and that's because to your point, this is not an easy uh, thing to go after. And, and so we didn't want to go after it with uh, a weak product. Uh, and I think that, uh, there have been a lot of approaches taken, and we've learned a lot from those approaches. We've learned a lot from other vaccines that are on the market now. We've we've learned a lot from uh, the vaccines that have been developed and used for uh, for SARS-CoV-2. And so, one of the things that we we know, and that I think the general population knows now, is that viruses mutate very easily, very quickly, and in against things that people that scientists didn't think they could mutate against. And so the approach that we've taken is to not pick a single target, not to pick two targets, but multiple targets, multiple key targets. Um, We've looked at over 2000 different strains of influenza and we've picked uh, we picked key components that are uh, conserved across all 2000 of those strains. And so a lot of people go after the hemagglutinin or against the M2E matrix. But 
they really don't necessarily go after both of them. And so we've found two targets on the hemagglutinin, one on the neuraminidase and two on the, on the M2E matrix. And all of these targets on their own generate neutralizing antibodies. And so we know that the virus, instead of mutating against one of them, would have to mutate against all of them and all of them at the same time and, and really would have to change its, its core substance to try and evolve around all of them. Additionally, uh, we have put a T-cell epitope on one of our peptides to, to further build uh, the long-term immunity, the durability that, that obviously we all wish we would be seeing on these SARS-CoV-2 vaccines so we wouldn't have to get them every so, you know, so often. Um, and then on top of that, we believe that adjuvants are a key, play a key role in getting good, uh, good response and good durability. And so we've been able to partner with what we believe is, is the best adjuvant uh, currently uh, available. And that's the one that the U.S. Army, Walter Reed Army Institute of Research team uh, has developed. And they are really one of the top, if not the top adjuvant group in the world, having been doing this for, for over 30 years, uh, just with the team that they have. Uh, this is a team that has uh, their previous adjuvant is used in GlaxoSmithKline's Shingrix vaccine, which uh, is one of the probably one of the most successful vaccines ever developed uh, and has really made a difference uh, for uh, shingles in, in the world and uh, is, is one that uh, I've had. Uh, and it, we've really built a vaccine that focuses on all components of immunity and, and develops a real balanced immune response uh, that we believe will both be successful and durable. Oh. You, uh, you you just referenced that relationship uh, with the Army, and I want to ask you a few questions about that as it relates to the vaccine candidate. So, um, so what, uh, I guess, kind of frame up for me, what support uh, you do receive from the Army as you work on that? Is it is it funding? Is it expertise? Is it science? Like, what does what sort of that relationship look like? So really, most of our of their support is, is expertise, science, um, the quality access to their adjuvants uh, for our, our vaccine technology. And, and really, uh, the level of expertise, if we were to go out into the community and have to, to find that at a corporation, would, would triple our budget. And so mm. being able to work with them, we bring, we bring the composite peptide vaccine, they bring the adjuvant, uh, and together we've worked to, to build it to optimize it, to test it. Uh, and now as we go into the clinic, uh, the U.S. Army has decided that uh, influenza is a priority for them, as they've seen with the COVID uh, pandemic and, and the role that it's played on uh, on readiness. Uh, we've seen you know, COVID blow through Navy ships uh, and, and other units and, and really create readiness issues. They're realizing that, that this is a concern that influenza could do this at some point as well. Mm -hmm. So they've made their clinical uh, their clinical trial site available to us. It's something we we pay for, uh, but it's a it's it's one of the the leading phase one uh, clinical trial sites, and 
having access to that and then having access to their clinical trial sites all over the world really allows us to rapidly move this forward uh, with groups that have done a lot of infectious disease vaccine work. And so the, the expertise there is, is really second to none. I'm going to ask you to uh, share some some advice, some insight or advice with with our listeners, leaders of other uh, emerging biopharma companies uh, who who may be interested in leveraging some of those resources. Because the the skeptical, uh, you know, the more skeptical or cynical perhaps of my listeners might be thinking like, well, yeah, I mean, Longhorn has access to all these great resources at uh, at the Army because you know Jeff Fisher's father was a super well respected and influential. Army physician, and he's got tons of connections and, and friends there. Um, you know, why wouldn't you think that? Um, so, beyond that, give us some some thoughts on uh, you know what it what it takes, what the approach might look like to develop and maintain a relationship with an organization like the Army that benefits uh, the development and, and testing and trials of of a particularly uh, a candidate that that might have applicability. Um, to, to the Army, might, might be a, you know, a, a, a vested interest uh, of, of the armies. So, does the question make sense? It does. I, I think that, that there are definitely ways to reach out to the Army. There are, um, there are portals and, and other ways of, of getting to key people. I think the importance is you, you have to come with a lot of science and you have to come with a lot of credibility behind your science. And, and it has to be something that benefits the military as well. Uh, it, it cannot be a relationship where you're you're leveraging the military for your uh, your benefit, but it doesn't benefit them as well. And I think that I would not approach them specifically looking for money. It, they're they have expertise and they have uh, technologies that are are as good as anywhere in the world. And I think that trying to, to learn and understand what, what those technologies are and and how that can interface with products that uh, another company might be developing, uh, I, I think is something that is, is worth doing. Uh, I think it, it is important to understand that, that the military is everywhere in the world. So they have labs all over the world. They have clinical trial sites all over the world. And they, uh, they're very much on the front line of what's going on. And so uh, the ability to to take advantage of that knowledge is 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 really helpful to us, and I think could be to a lot of other companies as well. Um, but if if you're going into it thinking that it's it's a way to pay for all of your work or it's a way to to raise your profile, um, I, I think that's the wrong reason to go into it. I think the right reason to go into it is because there's a lot of uh, benefit and a lot of uh, intelligence and experience there. Uh, and, and that's true of a lot of the, the HHS and some of their components, either CDC or FDA. There's a lot of technology and expertise there that can be tapped. And I think that people should look at that and understand that the government can be helpful and not just what we consider a regulatory challenge to overcome. Yeah, yeah, that's a w- well said. Excellent way to put that. Um so I want to I want to talk a little bit more about the the vaccine itself. Uh, you know, you you just referenced uh, the the value of of an influenza universal influenza influenza vaccine to uh, you know an organization like the Army or the Navy. You know, where we see these these pandemics uh, epidemics for that matter have profound 
consequences on our readiness. Share a little bit more about why the universality, uh, I guess, aspect of your vaccine candidate is so important uh, at, at this point in time. You know, why is it not why is it not okay to just kind of move forward with seasonal uh, se- seasonal tweaks, I guess, to the to the vaccine man- uh, the, the influenza vaccine manufacturing paradigm as we've been doing for so many years? Well, I think, again, much like we're seeing in with SARS-CoV-2 vaccines and what we've seen with seasonal flu vaccines for, for decades is that we're always a little bit behind the virus. And so some years we're closer and some years we're a long ways away. And so seasonal vaccines for influenza have shown uh, efficacy in the range of 15 to 70 percent, depending on the year. And so I think the general public is is becoming more and more skeptical of, yeah. of what of why I'm getting a vaccine that I'm going to end up getting. I'm still going to end up getting sick. Uh, and, and I think that vaccines are, are going to have to be better. They're going to have to have a, a much higher efficacy rate, a, a much higher rate of, of keeping people from getting symptomatic infection. And I, and I think that's where the universality comes so that you're not chasing the virus. You're staying ahead of the virus. And, and there are so many different potential strains of influenza out there. Uh, when you start looking at the combinations of different hemagglutins and neuraminidases, I mean, there are uh, untold numbers of potential strains of influenza that could jump from animal to human tomorrow. And I think that that is a, that is a concern. We've, one of the benefits of this vaccine, and, and we've really um, transitioned to a one health company because an influenza vaccine, a universal influenza vaccine, has tremendous applicability in the human side, but also uh, in the animal side, whether it be pigs or, or um, waterfowl or uh, poultry or, or others, where you, you need to maybe take it down at the source. I mean, we've seen the price of eggs and chicken and, and other uh, poultry go up because of, of outbreaks of H5N1 uh, avian influenza. Uh, this this is a, a universal vaccine that, that could have impact on all aspects of life. And I think that that's something that we're super excited about. And again, why it needs to be robust, why it needs to be not just chasing the virus, but getting ahead of the virus. Yeah. No, excellent. Excellent point. Um, yeah. And the, the point's not lost on sort of the, the, the marketability, if you will, to the, to the public, you know, the, the COVID vaccine effort has been a huge blessing and a giant curse in terms of public perception of vaccine efficacy, efficacy and, and durability, uh, w- without a doubt. And th- that creates a challenge for companies like yours uh, moving forward to, you know, leaning into the science, assuming that the science works and is, and is proven, the efficacy and the durability are both there, and the universality of the, of the candidate uh, is, is, what, is what you hope it to be. Uh, you, you still face an uphill, an uphill battle creating uh, or changing, I guess that is public perception around the V word, right? We do, and, and I think that uh, I, I think that it's something that we're excited about because we believe that we've got a vaccine uh, that will be very functional and very durable. And I think that having that type of vaccine, being being able to to 
compare more to a Shingrix uh, vaccine where uh, you get a shot and you, you don't expect to get the disease and, and you don't have to, you get two doses up front and then you don't get them every year. You, you know, you may go five, 10, 15 years uh, without getting a, another dose. And, and I think that's the, that's what we're going for. And I think that the community society is going to embrace vaccines that, that are, are patterned in that way that, that offer actual protection uh, and have long-term durability. And I think that that's a, a great opportunity. And then on top of that, each one of our uh, targets generates monoclonal antibodies that can be combined into a cocktail to then treat influenza. And, and what we've, we saw that very early in the pandemic, the, the antibody cocktails were very important for keeping people alive that that either got it before vaccines were available or got it after vaccines were available and, and uh, weren't um, vaccinated. So uh, we see that side of the business as crucial as well. Uh, but but we believe that that vaccine trust can be rebuilt uh, with the right vaccines. Yeah. All right. I'm going to ask you just a couple more questions. Then I'm going to let you off the hook. We're running short on time here, Jeff. Um, but one of the questions I have for you is around is around scale up, like your your anticipation of your ability to scale. So should should this vaccine candidate, the uh, universal influenza vaccine candidate, uh, make its way to uh, approval and commercialization? Uh, you know, we talked earlier about how you you moved your diagnostic product from 50k to 50 million in the course of 12 months, which is incredible. When we talk about a universal influenza vaccine, and, and then you introduce the concept of One Health, and you bring you know chickens and pigs into the mix, uh, that is some incredibly next level potential for scale up. Um, so, what's your anticipation there? I know it's uh, very forward looking, but what, what's your anticipation there in terms of your ability and also the the industry's ability to to scale up a vaccine that would be you know. Create, create demand of, of, of probably untold magnitude? Well, one of the things we learned in the diagnostic side is having good partners was crucial. And one of the benefits we had in the early scale up of our, um, of our sample collection technology was um, that we were working with a manufacturer that could take us from making 30 liter batches to 800 liter batches in about a six week period, we were able to make that jump. Uh, and then they were able to make uh, multiple of those a day and then really allow us to scale up. So when we went out looking for GMP manufacturers for our peptides, we wanted to find those same groups that uh, somebody who could, if, if tomorrow we needed to go from making uh, a kilogram to making, you know, 10 to 100 kilograms a week, uh, they could do that. And so we found that uh, the other thing that was important is that we learned from the pandemic is that capability better be here in the United States. And so we've been able to, to do that here in the United States. Uh, and they do have facilities uh, overseas as well. So for serving the rest of the world, that that can also be done there. I think one of the nice things is that peptide manufacturing is pretty well understood. Uh, it's it's a not a complicated process. Uh, it's 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 something that could be transferred fairly easily to other facilities, and so we we feel very comfortable that the scaling process will not be a problem. Additionally, uh, we see excellent uh, results at very low doses. Um, 
we're looking at uh, some of our early animal studies have shown uh, that transdermal delivery at very low doses um, could be uh, could, could be the path. And you know we're seeing that right now with the monkeypox, where the government is is splitting the the doses uh, by five times, you know, cutting it a single dose into five doses and then going transdermal. That's an approach that we had already been looking at and and see success with. And so um, I think that looking at ways of delivering it uh, to help build that scale are important. Uh, One of the nice things in pigs is pig skin and human skin are very similar. And so the ability to to do a lot of learning in pigs because that's a key market for us also helps uh, our understanding of how to maybe deliver uh, this vaccine to the U.S. and, and around the world, especially places where needles uh, can be challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so tell us about your preparations for, for the clinic. Where are you now? Well, we're preparing to uh, file our pre-IND with the uh, FDA. Uh, unfortunately, the FDA is pretty backed up right now with a lot of the SARS-CoV-2 work that's still ongoing, the challenge of getting new vaccines out. And so uh, we're getting that document in and, and working back with feedback. Uh, we're finishing up our GMP manufacturing so that uh, we'll have doses that can go into humans. Um, and so the hope is that uh, all goes well with the FDA and uh, we should be in the clinic in uh, the first half of 2023. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Fortunately with that, the, a lot of the key data will come out in the, you know, in the first four or five months of the study. Uh, the ability to see whether we get those same levels of neutralizing antibodies uh, in humans that we've seen in animals, the ability to find out whether uh, we're getting the same T cell responses in humans that we see in animals, uh, and, and start to see those signs of durability that we expect to see. Uh, you know, These are the things that we expect to see in this first trial and really understand how this vaccine is going to work in humans very quickly, as well as to, to see how uh, different doses uh change those outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, v- very exciting. Uh, what, what's next beyond so that, you know, we've talked quite a bit about the diagnostic diagnostics business, uh, where you are right now with that vaccine candidate. Um, is that keeping the plate pretty full right now? Longhorn or is there uh, sort of some, some forward looking uh, product news you can share with us? Yeah. Well, I think we're excited that uh, we have uh, a lot of focus on moving that in the clinic, but Behind it, uh, you know, we continue to think bold and and universal and and uh, key diseases, and uh, we're we've got some technology using the same vaccine technologies, but some targets that we believe maybe we could put together uh, a universal bacteria uh, vaccine that would cover both gram positive and gram negative uh, bacteria as well as tuberculosis, all in one vaccine, and so. Uh, a lot of it goes back to knowledge that we we had from our previous company, uh, as well as uh, really kind of how we build vaccines now. And so I think that uh, we're, we're very excited about that. It's it's still somewhat early, but uh, the, the initial signs are really good. And we're fortunately pulled together a lot of our old team uh, from people that we've worked with uh, in our last company and uh, really are, are excited about where this might go. Yeah. 
Very good. Well, it's a it's a great story. It's an exciting story. It's one I, one I definitely want to follow along with. So, uh, you know, twenty twenty three is going to be a a, bi- a big year, uh, especially that first quarter. We'll be paying attention and uh, cheering you on for sure. Wishing you all the best. Well, thank you. It's uh, you know it's an exciting time. I think we're all a little excited to come out of hopefully the the main phase of of the COVID pandemic um, while we continue to support it. But I think that there's uh, a lot of need and, uh, and and a lot of focus now on preventing the next uh, big outbreaks. And so we're, we're excited to be a, hopefully be a big part of that. Yeah. Well, great. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Jeff. I've, I've enjoyed the conversation. And uh, uh, thank you for I, having me. As I said, we'll, we'll be following along. We'll probably have, want to have you back on at some point. I, I would love that. Thank you very much. All right. So that's Longhorn Vaccines and Diagnostics co-founder and president, Jeff Fisher. I'm Matt Piller. This is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with, with Cytiva. Visit Cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech to dive into a host of resources the company offers to early stage biopharma companies. Please visit BioprocessOnline.com where I invite you to subscribe to my newsletter. And if you're enjoying these conversations with biotech leaders, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Leave us a review. And as always, thanks for listening.